Thanks, Paul. Welcome. Um, thank you for joining us tonight for our first Yak Chat that we're doing. Um, we'll just work through. We're going to try and cover some basics for those that are watching on some brim fishing and talk about brim. And we've got our round two at Hopkins and our round four at Nelson. So Paul's fished Nelson this year, I know, and he did quite well. So we've got some good questions. We can probably work through that and use that system a little bit to work through. Sure. So what we might start off with is um, just a bit of a general chat with Paul about his journey and where he's come from. And you've sort of done it different to a lot of people, I think. Um, you sort of started in ABT and worked your way back to a kayak, whereas a lot of people I know go the other way from a kayak into a boat and work their way through Vic Brim. So, yeah, a bit of a different experience for you and a different sort of way. But, yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about that, maybe, Paul, and your experiences, yeah. and maybe some highlights there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Matt. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on tonight too. Really appreciate the opportunity to come and chat with you guys. Um, so as, as you kind of mentioned, you know, I, I really got into my brimming early, I think, and it's oh, not its infancy, but quite early stages of, of brimming, especially in Victoria and Melbourne, and really got an opportunity to fish some of those old structures in the Yarra before all of them got bulldozed and uh, new high rises and, and buildings went up. There's some some cracking opportunities and some fantastic structure there back in the day. And, you know, knowing what we know today with some of the lures and techniques that we've got available to us, it would have been amazing to fish some of that stuff. But um, I started my corporate career quite early. So I worked at ANZ, still lived at home. So I really just loved my fishing and had an opportunity to, to buy a, a bass boat and uh, imported a, or ordered a skeeter through Josh and Skeeter Australia when I was in my early 20s, which was you know, a fantastic opportunity and just fished my way all around the state, up and down the East Coast, really loved fishing uh, places like Foster, um, Southwest Rocks, probably one of my favourite systems as well. And um, I know it is for, for a lot of other people as well, just some incredible variety of species and, uh, and uh, even like habitats and structures that you get to fish, you know, a memorable moment for me I was heading up there to fish the skater owners tournament one year with my friend Jordan Trusty and and we we were fishing way up river chasing bass and we get to one of the bridges up there in southwest rocks and I think we pulled 16 fish on 16 casts including flathead jewfish and bass all off the same pylons so it's just a, amazing a phenomenal system um, just a variety of species of all sizes and and some of the funniest moments really as a Victorian, you know, this was back in like a October, I think time of the year and the water temperatures are like in their low to mid twenties and we get there and we've, I think we've all had, our, we've already had our pre-fish and we get to the pub that night for the briefing about the skeeter owners tournament and they get the the local guy up there to come and have a chat. And he's like, well, you know, the water's pretty cold guys. So don't expect any surface bites and probably going to have to fish deep. And Jordy and I are just giggling our heads off at this point. So it's, we threw 20 pound on stiffy top dogs all day in the racks and just absolutely <laughs> rained them. And we're just giggling to ourselves because for us, mid twenties, warm water temperatures are warm. So it's thinking outside the square, but like taking on what we knew nice. in Victoria and applying that further North. And we absolutely would brain them day one. Like we were, you know, leading 
and we won every prize pack there was on day one and they get us up there on on stage after day one so what did you boys do <laughs> like well we did what you said not to do we just threw surface <laughs> all day and then we rocked up on the on the Sunday morning and every boat's just got surface lures tied on for, for Sunday so it was that was a lot of fun and um yeah look you know we've fished a lot of ABTs fished a lot of Vic Brim stuff with dad and as we still continue to do with with the ABTs I I did an event here or there and I didn't really travel as much it was really trying to find that right balance of work life obviously and time off so I yeah. probably preferenced a lot of the Vic Brims and just fishing time with dad um for for my annual leave and things like that and then trying think- to get I think that's a special thing. Like I look at that and I think getting to fish with your dad in tournaments and you yeah. know, I saw your dad comment on a few things and I quite often watch his posts and he's he's commenting on your channel and stuff. And I think that's amazing to still be able to fish with your dad has got to be a special thing. So yeah, yeah, he's so passionate too. Like he he lives for it. He breathes it. I was over there today and he's just itching. Like we're just talking about Malakuta, which is our next second round of the Vic Brims coming up. And we're talking about like pre-fish, what are we going to do? Where are we going to start? And we'll talk about that. Um, I think that's one of your questions well, Matt, that you had for me. Yep. And um, yeah, so really just preferenced a lot of the Vic Brims and, you know, we had a lot of success over the years and that, again, it's probably one of the things that I'll talk about is some of the things that helped me and probably helped us as a, as a collective, as a team is, was that opportunity to fish a lot of different systems at a lot of different times of the year. What I see is a lot of people, fishing comfortably fishing something that they know yeah and that's great you go out you catch some fish but you don't learn you don't learn enough you don't you don't go and have a shit day when it's you when it's just poured 40 mil and you go and fish the hopkins or you go and fish the glenelg and, and i know it's not always possible fuel costs are high accommodation costs are high i was in a different position i was actually able to do it yeah i'm just away for three weekends out of a month i didn't have any dependents i didn't have a dog i just I just went and fished and I didn't care about the weather. I just went, it flooded. Great. I'll go. And that taught me so much. It just allowed me to bounce around the state, bounce around from system to system from weekend to weekend. And I got to fish. Yeah. Malakuta, Glenelg, Hopkins in the dead of winter, in the heat of summer, like just try and experience all those weather conditions and then try and figure out what's going to work at those times of the year and try and, um, bank it all like all in the memory bank try and save up all that knowledge and in hindsight i probably should have started a a diary a long time ago and i know a lot of people talk about it something that i it's probably one of my i won't say a a regret but i was always pretty confident that my memory was pretty good and i'd be able to pick up on stuff but there's probably things that i'll still miss out on and i would have had a, a great collection and a wealth of knowledge if i really took the time took 30 minutes after a trip and just wrote it all down. I think there would have been some cool stuff to really look back on. But, yeah, it's never too late to start that kind of stuff too. Yeah, no, exactly. I know for myself, snapper fishing, it's one of the main things that we do. Um, you know, we'll GPS, weather temp, everything. So we've got a little book yeah. and we keep that as a record. And the next year we go, that sort of water temp, same time of year, the fish aren't far from those spots and you can generally find them pretty quick. So yeah. I think it would be similar to that with brim. Um, for me, I've bait fished for brim most of my life, but lure and that I've only been the last four or five years. So yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so for me, I sort of know where the brim are, but I'm still learning the techniques to catch the brim. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but 
again, I've learned through that. So look, one of the things I suppose that I noticed through, I've followed you for a while, even before I've had the Hobie, I was following you. Um, yeah. And I noticed one of the things that probably would be a highlight for me, and I know we talked about a little bit in our little chat before, uh, fishing through the Hobies, Australian Championships, and then getting a world's ticket must have been an amazing experience. Do you want to talk a little bit maybe on that for us? Yeah, um, for sure. Um, I, it's funnily enough, actually, Matt, I haven't, I've qualified for, but I've never actually fished uh, an Australian Championship yet. So oh, you're really, right. Yeah, so I, I actually qualified for the Worlds, and I'm not sure if I qualified for ACs that year that I that I got to go. But um, uh, so back in 2013, Dale and Matt Petrie and a couple of the other guys kind of said, well, come on, let's let's get you along to one of the first events. So 2013 was my first Hobie event down at Marlow. And then that was a one of Matt Petrie's borrowed kayaks back in the day when he was running his, uh, his tours, his charters out of the kayaks. And that was a, a PA-12. And then from there, I really enjoyed the experience and, and the whole group and the, the way that Steve ran the events. And I... Uh, I think I picked up a a secondhand PA14 just with a regular drive and ran that for God and a lot of years until I got my uh, my 360 uh, about or coming up to two years I think at the end of the year but um, yeah had some some consistent results that year when I qualified for Worlds and uh, I had to make the trip up to Foster so we headed up with uh, Neil Carstairs, Mitch King, uh, Rich Summit and a couple of others and. Um, it was it was an interesting place where I didn't know whether to play it safe out in the lake and try and just grind out a bag, but it's not not what I enjoy doing. I really enjoy the the structure, the racks, the the jetties and that kind of stuff. So um, I think on day two, I kind of made the longer pedal. I forget the exact part of the system, but um, essentially just fishing, you know, three to six kilo Miller rods, so beast busters, um, those customs that I run a lot and just cranking chubbies, shallow black chubbies through the racks um, on like 10, 12 pound liters and just continuing to wind, just keep their heads coming towards the yak. As soon as they hit and they hook up, you just keep cranking. Drags are um, locked up and really just hoping they don't go too far left and right and and did enough, I think, to to finish that event in about 14th place and got enough points to, uh, to make the world. So I think we had a team of about eight of us headed over that particular year to, to New Orleans and Louisiana down um, by the bayou. And, um, yeah, as I touched on, I guess, in the intro, the early part, we had some some wild weather swings. And um, I, I've, it's, it's an interesting point. We've been talking about this probably in the last week, week and a half, actually, um, even just heading up to Warnable recently to do that chat at Richardson Marine last week. And we had Declan, one of his friends, and Alex Bay in the car. And we're talking about what a great base brim fishing is for other lure fishing, for other types of fishing. And the the basics that it teaches you, like any of us could go up and fish for bass, could fish for barra, whereas you try and take a barra guy and you try and get him to a brim event, and I guarantee you he's probably going to double donut. <laughs> in a lot of systems, whereas we would have a better chance of at least hooking or knowing where to find Barra. And then whether our tackle's up to scratch is another topic, but you get someone who's used to fishing 20 pound, 50 pound, 80 pound, and you try and get them to fish three to six pound. And that's a different ball game. Whereas starting out with our brim, a lot of us go and do snapper, perch, bass, flathead, etc. And then it's just a lot, I feel like it's an easier pathway or a progression to then go and fish for 
for tuna, for barra, for bass, etc. And and for us, I think that translated well to a lot of the species that they had over in the US and the target species being redfish, um, uh, speckled trout, which is probably closer to, it's like a hybrid of between like a tailor and a mulloway perhaps. Yep. Um, and flounder was like the the kick of fish or the secret species, so to speak, but there was only a handful of them caught just due to the conditions and the water temperatures at the time. They just weren't really on. I think there was a handful at, at most of flounder that were caught. So it was really around trying to find your, I think it was two two redfish yep. and maybe one speckled trout or something like that. So you're trying to get your two longest reds that you can and then a speckled trout as well and um, trying to see overall length. It was an overall kind of length competition over three days from memory. So, and with the weather changes, it really changed every day of practice through the competition. And then with that strong wind that we had, it really knocked out a, a large portion of the arena, I suppose, that you could say, and what anglers were comfortable in pedaling and fishing in. So, you know, some of the conditions were pretty gnarly. So you, you look at stuff, we spent a lot of time on Google Earth. We spent a lot of time as a group talking about, you know, area, different areas that we had all fished and what we kind of saw and trying to, uh, I guess, collectively talk about a pattern that we could all follow in the different areas that we were there. Because from what I, what I experienced and what I've heard of other world or international events, um, a lot of the Aussies often do share information a lot. Yep. And it's really just around the whole collective or the whole group or anyone within the group doing really well. So okay. um, that was a, a really fantastic event. And and as you guys probably have seen, you know, Steve runs a great event. Chris runs a great event. But yeah, Hobie Worlds was just on another level. Once again, it's just one of those big US things, just yeah. like Master Classic um, more recently. But they just know how to run a big event, get everyone together and make sure it just runs super, super smoothly. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So what, what we might start to do, we'll move into some grim basics, I suppose, um, and we'll have a look at maybe how you coming into a system that you may have fished, may not have fished, it's a newer system where you might not have fished it for a few years, and maybe just go through some of the basics on where you start, where you go to, um, before you even hit the water, what you're looking for and stuff like that, just to give some of the guys an idea. Yeah, yeah, so really basic stuff if it's a system i haven't fished i will hit up google first and i will literally type in location fishing report and i will go through and i know i did that a lot i think it was for foster especially there was some old reports i think they were like archived fishing monthly pages <laughs> for that system week by week for years and i would try and find that time of year like three weeks either side of that weekend that i'd be going and I would read reports and try and put together a bit of a pattern. Are they in the lake? Are they in the racks? Are they on the rock wall? Are they here or there? And that would give me a good starting point. Second place, YouTube. Again, there's just so much content these days compared to three years ago, compared to five years ago, compared to 10 years ago now that there's, there's a lot out there, not quite spoon-fed, but there's so much information out there. So Google, YouTube, and I spend hours and hours on google earth yeah I, I pull maps apart um zoom in on every little log tree creek rock wall jetty a whole lot yeah 
um, and I'll try and pick it apart and then try and see where the where the launch is, for example, or ramp maybe, and and try and put together a bit of a plan of you know where do I want to go. Then as we get closer to an event, I'll look at weather conditions. So where's the wind going to be coming from, and what's the tide going to be doing? So those are going to be really important for me as well. So you know, even looking at Marlow, for example, I was constantly checking that that weather and that tide report, see if there was enough water in the lake up in Crindle. Um, I I don't like the place, but I know it fishes well. It always <laughs> fishes well. There's always big fish. I hate getting stuck. I hate you know having my fins digging into the sand all the time. But if there's enough water, I really want to try and learn it and get in there and and just make it work. So those are the types of things leading up to an event that I'll, I'll really focus on. If it's a place that I've fished before, it's trying to, you know, think back on those um, previous trips, past trips that I've been there, different times of the year, different water conditions. Is it, um, is the water clarity quite clear? Have we recently had quite a heavy rain event? Those are the types of things that I'll look at. And then even as far as just pre-rigging or re-rigging up prior to an event and going, I'll already have an idea of my mix of like clear plastics versus like motor oil colors or dirty browns and greens and that kind of thing. And, and likewise for my hard bodies, vibes and uh, blades, etc. So, so do you, do you set yourself a max area where you might cut off to, or do you just sort of see how you feel when you get to that pre-fish or on that day to see where your finish and finishes, you know what I mean? Like, so you've got your maximum spot of where you'd go to. Yeah, I, I used to I used to be quite methodical where I'll actually like even print out a map. Dad and I used to print out maps of Malakuta and we'd even just have a plan of like spot one, spot two, spot three, and that's what we want to follow. I think with just confidence and time and, and the way that our fishing's kind of evolved, we tend to just fish quite freely now. Yeah. Um, in the boats, we don't have so much of a limitation of, of spots. We'll, we'll, still, we'll still talk about what our run should be and and whatnot and in the yak it's really play it by ear on the day yeah so i'm taking into consideration the wind i don't i don't i don't take as many risks as i might have five years ago or ten years ago um but i'll still i'll still try and get a comfortable 15 to 20k kind of pedal out of my pre-fish and, and cover what i feel is you know enough water to be confident yeah and then look from there if if my pre-fish has gone horribly then i'll oftentimes just think back to that research that I did, identify some key areas and actually just head towards those and, and grind out in that area and start my day there. Even if I look at it at all on the pre-fish day, I will um, often go to an area where I know there's fish or there's fish moving there or there's often fish holding in that particular area. Yep. Even though there might be a couple of extra anglers there and you, you might have to share some space, which I don't really like doing I like to try and get away from from a lot of other anglers and and just try and do it do it by myself but um if you if you're struggling on pre-fish then it's looking back at that research and the the pre-preparation that you did you know at home and um, leveraging some of that knowledge that you you kind of read up previously yeah okay yeah um yeah i was gonna say i i noticed you were um at marlon sorry at glenell at nelson you were a fair way up when i saw you there up against the end of the ski zone there at the rock wall and, um, oh, and yeah. i wanted to keep going oh me, me, <laughs> me, and, corey, me and corey pushed me all the way up to donovan's and yeah 
Yeah, <laughs> it was it was a decent paddle up and back. So yeah, that was going to be me, but the only thing was I was staying with Corey and I was staying with Dylan Pace, so yeah. I knew Dylan was up there. Yeah, and I knew he was catching fish, and I think Corey. Yeah, I mean we chat. Corey and I chatted, and so it's again, you know, talking about that is one of them started down the front early or first up. Yeah, I can't remember who it was. That, that was Corey. Corey. Yeah. <laughs> And then, so for me, I knew that tide was going to be changing. And so I wanted to catch it before it, I wanted to be down there before the end of the day, before that two o'clock to see what it was like. See if I could find some fish, find some patches or schools and see how far or what those water conditions were. And so at that point, Corey and I just recently passed each other and I kind of went, it's 11 o'clock. I got to do the 180 and and head back downstream. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So... I suppose we'll move on to your, with what we've gone through from what you do before you hit the water. But once you hit the water, yep. Um, yep. maybe how you would structure your plan, what you would start um, and where you'd go from with your pre-fish and moving forward. Yeah, I'm just looking back at those questions that you sent me, just make sure I haven't missed anything. Hey, structure. Yeah, so for the comp day, depending on, depending on how the pre-fish went, so if our, say, I'm going to use Vic Brim as an example, it actually doesn't matter. Depending on how my pre-fish goes, whether it's individual in the kayak or Vic Brim, will really kind of determine my plan for the for the weekend head. And I'll use Marlowe as an example as well. So on Mar- in Marlowe, I got some really nice fish not far around that first island, but it was late in the day. It was around 2 o'clock. So I caught probably 3.2, 3.3 kilograms in like 15 minutes. Yeah, right. Around the first island. But that was the tide. It was like at the other end of the tide. Yeah. But I knew the fish were there. And so I started in that area. I dropped a really good fish early, got two fish, and that was it. And so I based off everything that I jumped around that on the Friday, that was the most productive area for me and held the most fish. From a weather perspective, it didn't change significantly between Friday afternoon and Saturday morning. So for me, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, I felt that I could try and capitalize on the last of the run-out tide in that area to try and catch, you know, some be- better fish, better quality fish. And I still felt like I had a good backup spot near the second island, but I knew there was a lot of perch in that area. So for me, that was a lower percentage play. And it really just comes down to what that tide's doing at different sections of the system. What I'm really looking for is flow of any kind. I want some movement, I want some run, or I want some wind pushing onto the shore um, if the fish are up shallow and feeding. So I think the Marlowe fish, they just it just wasn't a great weekend for yeah, I don't think it was feeding really fish at all. There were some some fantastic looking banks. You know, we had wind cranking, especially on that Sunday, and a lot of us just really struggled to to get fish in areas where you think they should be. Yeah. So it wasn't the greatest example of like, this is a likely looking spot. I'm doing all the right things. They just weren't on. They just weren't there. But coming back to that, you know, structuring their plan for the comp. Again, it it really comes down to whether I'm confident in getting a bag or whether I'm going for bigger fish as well. So do I want to make the long, long run to an area where I know I'm going to grind out a good bag? Do I want to stay nice and close to the ramp? Can I find some spots close by? and uh, make use of that low light, those low light conditions, especially in the shallows or on the flats or throwing some surface lures early. Um, that's another consideration. 
there's there's so many factors and variables and I think it, it comes down to experience and there's no simple kind of way of saying well in this situation I do xyz a lot of it is done on the fly like we'll sit there in the boat together dad and I will look around and we'll look at the water and the wind's doing this and we can see there's some waves lapping on that shoreline and we'll kind of go well we were going to go there but that looks really good um and we'll often just call an audible you know before we even take off so um i think yeah the biggest thing is really just time on the water and experience so coming back to your question in more detail structuring your plan leveraging what i learned on prefish if i had a really bad prefish looking at leveraging that information and knowledge that i gathered prior to an event um, and then from there being flexible in what am i going to do next i i i need to have backup spot two three four five ideally um if i've got a bag it's a completely different story if i'm still searching for my first second or third fish then again i i like to be quite structured right i know at this time of the day at this time of the tide window um i caught fish here and then i'll i'll try and replicate that and so if i caught fish at 10 a.m on the friday i tend to think of that as a, a bite window at about 11 a.m the next day so an hour later for my tides Yep. And that's what I tend to do or tend to make those adjustments uh, in my head as I'm planning my next day. So yeah. again, looking at day one on the Friday, my pre-fish, you know, I caught caught fish around that second island around 9.30, 10 a.m. So for me, I needed to be in that area at around 10, 10, 15 the next day to try and catch that early kind of wave of fish. Yeah. And I caught 10 perch on that around that second island. I just could not pull a broom out of that school. But they were, they're, they're there, they're mixed in and I'd, and then in my head, I'm like, well, that front section that I caught really good fish on, on Friday, they might go early. And so I abandoned that spot and went back to the front around that first island, hoping that those fish would, would fire up sooner on, uh, on that Saturday. And they just wouldn't, yeah. they just wouldn't go. And, and the big thing in that area was, and that, the big thing that happened in that area at Marlow was that strong wind that was pushing from the ocean or straight down the river system. It had actually changed all the bait fish and all the, the fish that were sitting in that area, in that deep hole around that first island or at the back of the first island from, from brim. And then on the second day, the salmon and tail had moved in. And then on the Sunday, it was all big flathead. Yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't had a touch on the flathead all weekend. And then I caught two in the mid sixties yeah. and a smaller fish and not a single brim bite on Sunday. So the place just evolved and I just didn't, didn't adjust, didn't make the right adjustments. Cause I had, I didn't have enough to fall back on. I knew there was some fish being caught on the rock walls on crabs and the rock walls were just, there's too many kayaks on them. I just, yeah. I came out of one of the little um, creaky river inlets and um, I went straight over the back to have a look. And I think you were sort of on the other side of that first island at that stage. And I passed you and I went yeah. to go fish that wall and it, it was a car park. There was hardly anywhere yeah. to go. So. Yeah. There was like five kayaks just moving up and down on it the whole day. And, and so I just, I really just ran out of, you know, out of likely areas. Yeah. I mean, the, the results showed how tough it fished, but Coming back to an earlier point, I knew that the lake would fish well. I knew that fish would come out of the lake and they're always good quality. But because of the tide and my confidence there, I never made that commitment to go yeah. and 
but it's something in hindsight that I should have done. And there's some other places like in the Brody, some rock walls up there that that I know can hold fish yeah. quite um, quite frequently or quite consistently that I probably should have been more open to trying. Yeah, but that's that's the tough thing in a kayak free fish as well. It's quite hard to move around and, and cover that much ground, especially with strong tides and and weather conditions and winds and things like that. It's a lot easier to, to obviously cover a lot more water in the boat. Yeah. Um, so sort of back with pre-fish to comp day, when you pre-fish, yeah. if you're using a certain lure and say you catch a fish on that lure, would you then put that lure away and cycle to a different lure or would you do you sort of have your favourites, so to speak? I tend to have my favourites. I might make a slight adjustment to see if, if they will take another style of lure or another colour of that same uh, profile. Yeah. For me, I for, for Marlo, like, honestly speaking, I had a friend who'd fished it in the boat probably a week before. So I knew some general areas that he kind of called out and and profiles like the Daiwa um, bait junkie paddle tail. And he goes, well, that's what we were doing. And I gave that a go and that's what worked for me. And I just kind of stuck with it. Um, don't know if that, and and the Pro Lure um, clone prawn 62. But that was something that I, I kind of picked up because I knew Marlowe's a big prawn fishery. And I did cycle a few different colours. Um, but again, those perch just love those clone prawns. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I caught one brim on pre-fish and um, that was about the only brim I saw all weekend. So, um, but the amount of perch I caught there was ridiculous. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that little creek system, I wasn't far from behind that first island and it was just perch and big perch and just yeah. constantly. So, yeah, I think it was yeah. just one of those weekends where the fish weren't biting. So it makes it a bit harder. Yeah. Were, were um, you in that big straight long canal thing? Yeah, 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 and it sort of had a couple of little off edges that went off to different parts of the other systems, and one I think one linked up to the snowy even. But yeah, yeah I was I was up in there fishing up and down. Um, you know, yeah, I so that's the... where I went in there on the Sunday because again, you know, thinking back to previous times, we've had days where we've caught ten fish over forty centimeters in that straight canal system yeah. on its, but the water was so low that a lot of that structure and trees they just weren't in and under on those undercuts and on, on, on those banks. Look, I, I had good fish on the active target, but they just wouldn't bite. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it makes makes it hard. It makes it more frustrating when you can see them, but they don't want to play. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I suppose the other one is weather, like if you, mm. how it can change the fish. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit on that and how you find, you know, obviously with brim fishing, I know from my experience when it's a, glassed out day the fish are a little bit more finicky and finesse so yeah I, look i don't know the the level of i guess knowledge in the group so i might just try and try keep and keep basic and basic and and apologies if you guys already know this but look generally speaking for me if it's a calm clear day um sun's up and there's not much wind at all so i'll, I'll either have to downsize my leaders and i really don't like doing it um I don't like going any lighter than four personally, but there will be times where I'll go to three if I really need to, especially if we're fishing shallow and the fish are quite weary. Um, I find that really long, long casts wherever possible um, will really assist or help give you that, that best chance of getting a bite um, as far away from the kayak as possible. So I think with the axe, we're a lot more stealthy than we are in the boat, also being quite low. 
um, if it's if the weather conditions are, are windy, it's overcast, the water's quite dirty. Quite often, I'll run six six pound liters and above, and I'll try and really use those weather conditions to my advantage. So. I touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'll try and fish those areas that are uncomfortable for a lot of other anglers. So areas that have got really strong winds blowing onto the bank and I'll try and fish those wind blown banks. Um, lures such as the jackal chubby, the, the spike or the dunk are, are great searching lures. They allow you to cover a lot of water. They're also quite a loud and a big profile and a big presence in the water that those fish that are moving moving around and, and roaming and feeding on those windblown banks. Um, those are the types of lures that they really hone in on. So that allows you to a cover water quite quickly. You'll generally have that area to yourself, but it you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, so to speak. So you, you've got to know that you're going to get rocked around a bit. You're going to get blown off. And I, I haven't run a power pole until this year. So um, you know, it's just something that I've been mindful of. I've run like wind socks or um, drift shoots. I've run a, a manual stakeout pole for a while as well. And it's just a lot of effort with those manual kind of apparatuses, but it's very doable. You don't have to have, excuse me, you don't have to run a power pole at all, but really trying to leverage those weather conditions to, to maximize my opportunity of getting a bite as well as getting a big bite. Um, coming back to the really calm or clear conditions, I also try and in those situations where I can, where there's structure available, I'll try and go to a, an area with structure, an area with shade, an area with some current. The water might be clear, but if there's good tidal flow or good movement, whether it's created by wind or the moon, um, I'll try and use those areas or find those areas and fish those. So even though I might need to go down to three or four, but at least... You know, I can drift my lure down using the current. I don't want to get into an area where it's stagnant and it's super clear. That's like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, there are times when they'll still still feed, but you've really got to slow down your action. And then, you know, oftentimes instead of using something like a bent minnow or a dog X junior or a sugar pen, you'll need to go down to like a little atomic canine walk or a canine pup, whatever it might be. Something something small. It just creates a little bit less disturbance and you've only got to walk it like two or three times before you've got to pause and make those pauses a little bit longer and wait for them to come up and slurp it. Those are the little subtle things that you've got to adjust for when the conditions are really slick. Um, whereas on the other side, again, coming back to those overcast conditions or windy conditions, and even talking about um, surface lures, for example, some of the best surface fishing I've had is in half foot to a foot of chop with, you know, yellow, big yellow bananas, um, the mega bass, dog X juniors and dog X's and just walk in those things and just get in those fish, you know, bow waking and bow waving, charging after them. Um, so it's just making those slight adjustments in color, making them really stand out, use those bright orange sugar pens, um, those dog X juniors, use UV colors to your advantage as well. Yep. Um, what else can I say about weather? Um, yeah, you know, I talked about structure, but some of the other things that, that you can also use is try and find some shadows. So things such as natural tree lines and, and rock walls, they can also fish quite well in those times where, where it is quite clear and quite uh, still and sunny. So trying to think of all those conditions 
and options um, when, when I am looking at, at weather or being out in the water and being able to adapt and adjust. Right. Yeah. So maybe we might move into more for the guys, like obviously around two and round four this year for yak hunters is going to be prim as yep. their primary species. Um, maybe three lures where you'd start for the people that don't fish for brim, obviously, because not all the members of fish for brim and all of the guys might have only just played a little. Um, yep. So maybe, you know, three lures that you would suggest them to start with and maybe go through a basic technique on how to use that and even maybe a setup on what to throw that with. Sure. Yeah, so I was having a think about this and I think even... <clears throat> If you just if you're going to ask me about three lures that I'd pick up or pack, uh, they'd probably be these three for regardless of where we are around the country, around the state. I'd pack a light olive cranker crab. I'd pack a jackal chubby suji deep. Um, pink eye or non pink eye, it's up to you. And then I would pick a motor oil paddle tail. Again, that's up to you. So whether it's a Z-Man, a Hurricane, a um, Daiwa Bait Junkie, etc., that's up to you. But coming back to the first one, the Cranker Crab, I think it's a real... So all three lures are really versatile. So that's the reason why I've chosen them. So Cranker Crabs are great around rock walls, natural structure. They're fantastic around jetties and pontoons. Um, and they can also work really well just out on the flats, especially for guys who are running active target, for example. So if you know, or even visually watching and looking for digs or like little black spots or trying to even just target individual rocks, say at Nelson, um, down the front in the estuary, a lot of times there'll be fish sitting around just individual boulders and rocks and something like a cranker crab using that tide to your advantage, casting upstream, letting that crab waft down past that rock. A lot of times it's just deadly. Um, generally speaking, again, I'll adjust my leaders depending on where I am, but on the flats and uh, rock walls, I'll fish four to six pound and then jetties and pontoons, it's really six, eight, ten plus. Really just depends. And those, those Nelson fish are some of the angriest fish I've met in a long time. And um, for those that didn't watch my vlog from Nelson, I think I was down six cranker crabs after the weekend and I was fishing uh three to six kilo rods and 10 pound liters by the end and still getting stitched up um in terms of the technique you know i, I touched on the one around natural structure in the flats and, and using the tide to your advantage with fishing man-made structure and bridges and and uh, shacks and pontoons and jetties it's really around getting accurate casting in the shadows or within the shade getting it in I don't want to say nice and deep, but generally speaking, those are your best chances of pulling fish or, or getting the bite of a better fish. The front faces of shacks and pontoons can hold them at different times of the year, and it really just comes down to pressure and the number of people that have gone through there. So I might start out on some of those more, more accessible areas, such as the, the front faces of shacks and pontoons, and if I don't get bites, I'll really work my way in and under, under those shacks. And... That's where I found I was getting the most bites and I found a lot of anglers were able to fish outside, <clears throat> but they weren't having much success, but it was, wasn't until you were getting those lures nice and deep that you were getting the bites. So it's a, it's a risky play. Sometimes you win them, sometimes you lose. So it's just something you've got to be mindful of and be prepared to, to put up with some of that loss. 
of lure, you know, fish and cost. So um, in terms of technique with crabs, it's really quite simple. For me, it's just a an accurate cast and let that lure sink down close to a vertical pylon or within a within the close area of a of a jetty or under a jetty. I don't care if it's out in the open, they'll go and find it and they'll pick it up. <clears throat> the thing you've got to be mindful of at Nelson, what I noticed was those fish were hitting it at speed. Typically, a lot of crab bites, you kind of get this pluck, whereas those Nelson fish seem to be looking at it, charging, picking it up and just keep going. So they're, you know, they're already going at 10 kilometres an hour by the time they've been picked that thing up and they're just gone. They've got to turn left or right and everything's barnacle and crusted again at the moment in there. So everything's super sharp and it's game game over in, in a matter of seconds. So. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the axe, because there is that little bit of movement, it, especially with big fish, they'll tell you if they need to. They just need need to move the kayak 10, 20 centimetres or the wind blows you in. It's very different to a boat. So I think fishing man-made structure out of a boat is a lot easier than kayaks, especially in places like Nelson where it is muscle and crust and, and oyster and barnacles and things like that. So it's a high reward, high risk kind of play. I was definitely on the right fish to win it. Um, without a doubt, I think if I if I landed six fish, it would have been game over. But wasn't to be. Yeah. With, and again, this the the techniques um, all kind of translate across the systems. There's less shacks, obviously, at at Nelson uh, at at the hobbies, um, but there are some pontoons. There's the bridge and there's rock walls. So a lot of the rock walls is really a similar similar kind of technique. You really just want to sink your crab down into the strike zone or let it hit the bottom in likely areas. So I'm looking for big boulders. I'm looking for any undercuts. I'm looking for shadows, shade, and any current breaks. So I'll try and focus on those as I make my way up along the rock walls. So like the ski zone, upper end Bay of Biscay, and as you continue to head up, all very likely areas. And um, they're, they're big crab systems. So you've got to be really mindful of that, that if you if you stick it out with a, an olive or a glow crab, you're likely to come across. Shit. That's all right. I'm back. All right. I bumped it. You're all right. <laughs> um, so if, if you do stick with those crabs and continue to work the shallow edges and the rock walls and those drop-offs, you are likely to come across good fish throughout the day at both systems. Um, with the jackal chubby, great for flats, as I touched on before, but also fantastic for cranking at rocks as well. Um, they're quite snag resistant, so you can bump them um, with that deep bib. It, the idea is really just a slow roll, even for black brim, they do love a slow rolled hard body. And all you want to do is really just bump them off uh, rock and timber. A lot of times if you get it kind of hung up, if you can, you can pause it. If you get the floating chubby, we'll try and float back out. And a lot of times that's where the fish will crunch it is where you've hit a big snag, you've let it float back out and that's where the fish will really pick it up and slam it. Um, and the Z-Man or a, a paddle tail, motor or paddle tail, I think is a just a wonderful all rounder. I've chosen it over a grub because I think in general, overall, it just seems to catch more fish in more places for me personally. 
it's a real tight kind of toss up between a, a grub and a paddle tail. If you can have four lures, I'd obviously say grub and paddle tail. Um, but if we're just saying three, then I think a, a motor oil paddle tail for me would, would be the third lure. And, um, you know, a nice hop and pause retrieve is really all I use for those. But... So when you're using a paddle tail, um, would you still run that like a grub with your jig head and go to like a 120th, 116th, 112th, or do you go a lot lighter or a lot heavier? So at, at Marlow, for example, I ran a 16th yep. all weekend, um, just with those tides and the wind. And one of the techniques as well with that heavier jig head is, A, you can do your traditional hop and pause. And the great thing about that one sixth is it gets into the strike zone sooner, but it also creates a really good puff of um, mud and sand as it lands. So quite often that one sixteenth or one twentieth that, that goes really slowly and just touches the bottom doesn't actually attract them as much as something that moves really quickly. It's like, like, what the heck's that? I better go over and have a look because all it's doing is and it kicks up that little dust and sand and mud and often those brim will come over and just figure out what what it is what you know what's what's causing that um that 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 puff of sand is it is it a little crab or is it a little um sandworm coming out etc so i do alternate generally speaking i will run a, a 116th or a 112th a lot i don't like to run really light um plastics uh really lightly weighted paddle tails or grubs I find that any lighter than like a 120th doesn't really work for me unless I use something like a creature bait, something small like a Demeki Monster Meki or a Risky Critter or something of that um, that nature um, or something like a, a Hurricane Sprat or a Munro's where I will use something like a 128th or, or a 132nd or a 140th even. Um, especially when I'm, I'm fishing camo sandworms. So six, a six inch camo worm is a, is a great, um, great soft plastic, but really lightly weighted for me. But yeah. coming back to the, the paddle tails for me, it's a one sixteenth, maybe one twentieth and all the way down to a one sixth. Yeah. I really so, like it. prefer to fish them heavier, prefer to fish them faster and really enjoy fishing them on open mud flats yeah. right. where, so, I'm, where I'm drifting and covering water. So with those three that you've sort of picked there, um, and I guess it'll translate into other lures and stuff as well. Do you are you a Braden leader or are you a always always? Yeah. Yeah. I've tried I've tried straight through twice and I hate it. I yeah, okay, it. yeah, I, I haven't tried it yet, so I'm I'm just Braden fluorocarbon leader, and that's yeah, the traditional yeah. FG knot, and away we go. So the traditional W uni knot, and away we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah W uni, so. Um, that's, that's, if, you, if anyone's been following my channel, that's been the running joke for way too many years now. <laughs> Everyone gives me shit for running double unis, but you know what? It's been it's been rock solid for me. I can tie it with my eyes closed in 30 seconds. And I've come from a background of no one in my family fishes, so I've had to learn everything through YouTube and Google. Yeah. And, and for a long time, I couldn't do an FG, and I copped a lot of crap for it. So it's only been probably the last 18 months that I've started FGs, and I used to just do double unis, um, yeah. and I'd never had a problem with it So yeah. Yeah. until I lost a fish one day, and then that changed it. So it moved it on to that. But um, I suppose... I'm the okay other part with the heavier line, but the light stuff, my brain and my fingers just cannot cannot do it. They just 
truly uh, can't. I, I think in a boat, it's easier to do an FG than what it is in a kayak too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can, you got a bit more room. You can stand up while you're doing it. It's yeah. Um, what about uh, length of leaders? What sort of length of leaders and maybe uh, even, <laughs> even, even what sort of rod, like rod length would you go? Yeah. So typically what I like to do is have my leader knot outside the, uh, outside the, I am. You can see that. So yeah, I can see that. Not... So that leader knot, I don't like that being on the spool. Yep. This is probably a touch too long for me. So if you consider where that lure would be when I'd go to cast, that leader knot would be on the spool. So what I try and aim for is have, you know, 30 to 50 centimetres of hang off the rod tip and have that leader knot just above where my finger would go when I go to cast. Yeah. Probably a length and a half worth of um leader and i don't, do you, don't and do you go seven foot or over seven foot rods for most of your stuff in the kayak or i've now really got a mix to be honest matt i'm now running everything from six to seven foot and seven foot nine i guess yeah, okay. so i run bass freak and bass freak m's bass freak xh's which are six footers yeah and then all the way up um i guess my most my most popular length is like a seven three. So I've got three grub freaks, a blade freak, and something else. And a flat freak, I guess, but that's even longer. But yeah, I was gonna say foot, I, I... seven foot three is probably my most preferred or my go to. Uh, but I've I've got I've got a whole range. For anyone that's seen me out on the water, it just looks like <laughs> Porcupine. Just, I was about yeah. to say that I've I've noticed before out in the water eight nine rods in a kayak and yeah yeah it, it gets too confusing for me I think at that yeah I and again because I've got in my head we go to these places and I want to try these specific techniques that require a, a rod to do that and I need to take that heavy rod to try and throw the master I want to take that heavy rod to try and throw the crab in a particular spot if it doesn't work it's just going to sit there all day but just in case yeah i've always got it there so it's it's not uncommon for for me to have eight to nine rods in a in a tournament i try and keep it to seven to eight in a tournament and then i'll run nine on on prefish yeah. but um yeah as i said six foot for those short casts around structure those are my my beefy rods um my three my three to six kilo customs are six foot nines the brawlers are six foot sevens, and then your your traditional stuff, the twitch freaks, one of these like six ten. Um, yes, yeah, it's twitch freaks are six ten for my stick minnows and hard bodies, and then all my soft plastics, seven foot three, and the the blade freak I use for cranking and for blades, and that's seven foot three again. So yeah, right. it's a real mix. The, a lot of the Miller Rods range is really becoming quite technique specific. Yeah. And, that's really kind of dictates the the length, but there's no there's no set rules around it. It's whatever you're comfortable with. Um, the one thing I will say is I think a lot of people fish fish light for certain situations, like around structure, like around rock walls and and snags. They, oftentimes I fish like a one to three or a one to four kilo rod. Even a two to four is sometimes too light. They they rods I wouldn't even pick up in a lot of those situations and you know I've, I've heard days of people blowing 270 to 300 dollars worth of hard bodies in a day 
Yeah, they're not upping their leaders. They just haven't got the right gear for the job to turn the heads or turn the fish and and get them out of structure. Yeah, yeah. Crazy days, like blown 12 to 15 crabs up again in Painesville and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, so reel-wise, I suppose, just briefly covering on it, do you sort of stick to that 2,000, size reel or do you go right down to even the smaller stuff of 1,000? No, I hate anything below a 2,000. I think yep. it causes more wind knots. And, and for me personally, it, it makes it harder for better line control and line weight. I feel like I'm pretty good with it in terms of, again, you guys might see me fiddle a little bit if you watch some of the, the videos over the years, again, one of the things people give me shit for is always checking my drag. I think yeah. it's just an OCD thing now at this point. But I try and make a cast, but I don't ever close my bail arm by winding the reel handle. I'll do that manually. Yeah. I'll try and take up the first little kind of 10, 15 centimetres of slack of that line and wind that first bit on under tension. So I try not to get any loose loops of line onto my reel because that's the stuff that will start your um, next wind knot yeah so i try and eliminate that and, and do that first little wind under tension and i'm i'm i don't know if it's right or wrong again i wind with my right but i cast with my right so i switch hands yeah and people talk about you might miss that bite there's so many so few times that i feel i would ever miss a bite on the drop so soon after making a cast or that lure hitting the water that I wouldn't feel it by making that switch. Yeah. So for me, it's a, a non-issue and it's just always what I've been comfortable with. Um, but 2003 size reels, more of like that finesse style with a smoother drag for my soft plastics and my cranking rods. And then I start to head up to a 2500 size for my, excuse me, my like twitch freaks. So these are starting to get a touch beefier. So I might throw these around structure. We've got some stick minnows, we've got uh, chubbies, we've got spikes, that kind of thing. And then moving on to brawlers. So again, getting heavier again. So they're 2500s with a higher gear ratio. So at that point, I'll start to look at gear ratios as well. So what I mean by that is for those that aren't familiar, different reels have got different gears inside them. And if you have a look at like a spec sheet or an, or an overview of all the different sizes, you'll see different names kind of or different characters or symbols associated with them. Sometimes you see like an XH, which is like extra heavy or extra, or an XF sometimes, extra fast. But you'll also see like a gear ratio number associated next to that reel. So your traditional is somewhere between like a 4.7 and 5.7 or 4.8 and a 5.7 is like your, your stock standard. And then some of, your, some of your higher gear ratios are like a 6.2 or, or above. And so for, for some of my reels and my combos that I typically use around structure or snags, I'll only run XH or high gearing reels on those rods. So I'll try and go up a size. So I've got some 3000s now as well that I run. And I'll run the highest gear ratio, 3000 that I can get. Yeah. So what that allows me to do is get more line back with every turn of the reel to get that fish out and moving away from the snag or structure. Yeah, okay. So out of the flats or on rock walls where there's less chance of fish busting me off, I, I just want a nice smooth drag and I don't mind how much line I get back. So whatever I get back, I get back. But around structure and pontoons and jetties and snags, when I get that bite, I'm getting that fish out. 
Okay. Um, maybe what we might sort of just in a basic general for the guys that are just getting into the brim fishing. Um, I know you're a miller man, so this will be a pretty easy question for you. Um, what sort of rod would you be looking at for maybe your initial first rod to start brim fishing? Maybe just go into size and length maybe. And yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. I'll keep it generic because we, we also touched on this point the other night at, in Warnable and the, the technology these days and, and the value for money that you get these days compared to five, 10 years ago is just leaps and bounds. Like, uh, a three hundred or four hundred dollar combo these days is what you used to pay eight nine hundred dollars for ten years ago. So, what what I would be looking for if it's it's your very first brim outfit, I'd be looking at a seven foot single piece rod, um, one to three or two to four kilogram. If you want to do a little bit of everything with it, if you want it to be like a all all round general purpose stick, I'd look at a two to four kilo rod personally with a fast action taper. I wouldn't get a like a slow or, or a medium. I think a fast action covers you for a number of different techniques, such as soft plastics, vibes, even hard bodies. You'll If you've got your drag set well, you're unlikely to pull hooks with a fast action taper still, even at that point. Um, and really it just comes down to budget at that point. So whether you're in the atomic kind of arrow space, it's marquee space, Diver space that's got so many different lines within that diver range now as well with the in feet and I don't I beyond in feet I don't even know what they've got <laughs> they've got a ton of rods and then you you move up into your your samurais and your millers and your duffs and there's just so much variety out there and it really just comes down to what what you're comfortable with from a budget perspective and what really feels good in the hand that's really the biggest thing and. And what I often recommend to people is if they've got a reel or if they've got a rod and they're like, oh, what, what would you recommend? You know, how, what should I pair it with? And, and the biggest tip is always take that to the tackle shop and put it on a rod and see what feels good to you. See what feels comfortable, what balances really well as well with that particular rod that you've already got or that particular reel. Because oftentimes, like I had a, I bought a, a surtape, for example, from, from Japan and I, I've, got a rough idea of weights and what's going to fit well. And, you know, I picked up this 2,500 Surtate and the balance was just way off. While it was only 30 or 40 grams different to what I ended up with, that 30 or 40 grams just made all the difference for, for me in terms of balance for that particular outfit. So it was really important to try and get, get those two together and have a feel in the hand. And again, you know, just see, see what feels nice to you, but what feels nice to me and what feels nice to you, Matt, or Travis or Pete or Trav is, is going to be different again. But for me, if I can balance an outfit on two fingers like that, to me, that's pretty well balanced. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably, um, I'm probably one of the worst for it, but I'll um, quite often go up to Dale or someone who's got a nice handful of rods that are either just coming out or have come out. Yeah. And, you know, what, what have you got there? What, what new stuff have you got? Can I have a look? And, you know, Dale did it for me at Nelson. He gave me one of the new SKs to have a look at and, Yep. You know, that that's one of the best ways I can I go through and find that process. So I, you know. I do the same thing. I gave um, Mitch, uh, I forget Mitch's last name, um, one of the Grub Freaks as well. I gave it yep. to him at Nelson, and he used it at Bem. Yep. Same deal. And I'm I'm always open to that stuff. If if anyone you know wants to have a play, and you see me out and about, come and grab a rod. I do not mind at all. But yeah, if you get that opportunity, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mitch McMaster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really good way of doing it too. And and until you have a cast with it as well and or you try and land a fish with it, that can that can be quite different to what it feels like in the store as well. So there's one thing having a play in the store and then using it in the real world. Yeah. So what we might do, we might open it up to some questions. If any of you guys that are in the feed here have got some questions, just raise your hand on your emotion and I'll um, click you through. And... and I might just add a little bit more in terms of like that outfit too, Matt. Yep. Um, in terms of like braids for me, what I and braids and leaders we haven't really touched on, but you know, I, I feel like I probably run much heavier braid than a lot of people just for my brimming. I don't think I've got anything lighter than 10 or 14 these days. Yeah, right. So what I try and do is actually just try and find the thinnest diameter for that breaking strain for both my braid and my leader. With the advancements in, in braid, especially braid technologies with especially eight strand and 12 strand and 16 strand, that stuff is just so thin these days that you don't need to run that four or six pound braid anymore. You can go up to a 10, a 12, 14, Again, I've got so many rods with 16 behind me that you guys would just laugh at. Um, they're 0.8 of a PE, but they're super thin. Yeah. Um, and so that allows me to then, you know, get that extra strength and, and muscle those fish out if I need to and allow me to tie to some heavier leaders if I need to. Allows me, allows these outfits to be multi-purpose, multi-use. I can go out and chase pinkies, salmon and flathead and whatever it might be and still be confident that, you know, I'm not going to get busted off or feel undergunned in any way. Um, it's You do have to be mindful that you don't want to run too heavy of a braid and drag setting through a light rod. That's that's a definite. You don't want to run five kilograms of drag through a one to three kilo rod because that will blow up on you. But if you, if you are um, kind of semi-reasonable with it and, you know, adjust your drag accordingly, then there's there's no reason why you can't run some of those heavier braids. And you'll often have less issues with wind knots as well. So some of those really thin, fine braids have a tendency, especially for newcomers, to, to loop up and, and cause some of those issues with wind knots. So I find that these are a bit more forgiving. There's also some great value for money braids, such as the Majorcraft Dangan X8. Yeah. So the eight-strand Dangan is just for 30 bucks a spool, or I think I've got it for like 24 or 26 at times, I think it's just amazing. So what thickness in the braid are you looking for? Um, oh, it ends up being like 0 0.01 of a mil or 0.1 a mil. Yep. It's ridiculously thin. And, lead, and you're saying leader-wise, so... I do the same thing with the leaders. So I will... I spend a lot of time on, on Google and the products um, manufacturer's website and try and find those tables of diameter sorry, of uh, breaking strain to diameter. If you're on the US sites, it does make it harder because they do it in inches and you're yeah. trying to compare inches to millimeters and I can't be bothered doing conversions. So a lot of times the Japanese stuff is just a lot easier. They, they play in pounds and millimeters. So four pound, and I hate to, to make this example, but a lot of that new dial stuff is actually a lot thicker than a lot of their competitors for that breaking strain. So I think I forget the the brand, but it's I think it's that red and gold kind of red and yellow packaging of the Daiwa fluorocarbon leaders. Oh yep. The you brand, compare, I think it is. Yeah. I, I did some comparisons and it's way thicker than a lot of the competitors, such yep. as Sunline, Yamatoyo, etc. 
So what I try and do is is find those really well-known brands and uh, find the thinnest diameter per breaking strain leader that I can for that class. So in my footballs, I'll try and find the thinnest four, the thinnest six, the thinnest eight, thinnest 10, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Have any of you guys that are there got any questions for Paul before we sort of start wrapping things up? If you do, no, shaking heads. No, we covered everything pretty well. Yeah. That <laughs> doesn't seem to be too many questions. Which is no, good. That's all right. If you guys think of anything afterwards, feel free to reach out too. If there's anywhere, you know, if there's a centralized. Yep. So, or... so we'll give Paul his plug on, you know, start mention, mention where to get hold of Paul so that if some of these guys, which I know yeah. that was, you're one of the names that gets brought up around camp a lot. And that was why I reached out to you for, for this. I know I've, for the last probably six years, I've reached out to you from questions to buying a Hobie, what to look for, sounders. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've always been great. Um, you, Dale, Corey, all of the sort of guys that have been in it for a long time, um, even at Nelson, Nick Mace, he was helping Macy a fair bit as well, you know. So you guys have always been great and been inviting people in. So yeah, you know, it's a great group, and um, you know everyone we've touched, you've touched on there is yeah, it's just a, a wealth of experience and knowledge, and especially for the for those of you that are starting out, or and I know it can be intimidating at first, but you know try and try and make some connections, try and make some some friends and create little groups because that information sharing and knowledge that you guys can then bring to the group can really accelerate everyone's learning and knowledge much, much faster at a much greater rate. So if you're trying to do it alone, um, it's going to take you, you know, X amount of time. If there's two or three of you in a group that suddenly that you can really gain two, three times more every, every trip, every tournament, every social day out, you just learn a lot more. So one of the questions that's in the comments part, which is on the live feed in the channel, um, yeah. they want to know how do you approach Pato? Um, we did a winter comp there and um, yeah, it was a yeah. very difficult place to fish. Um, look, Pato's evolved and changed over the years. I, I've i been fishing the Pato pretty strongly probably since about 2002, 2001. Yeah. So I've seen the Pato pre-perch and it, it changes like every year it changes you know two years ago there was some amazing fishing just off the rock walls and the the sand mud flats over winter time just on on grubs and paddle tails and and that changed last year and it's there's a couple of key areas that i'll always go to to try first but a lot of the principles that i spoke about earlier still ring true and that's current is a big thing for me current and shade um some sometimes or some days the early morning bite around structure just doesn't go until that sun comes up a little bit higher and it creates those slightly different or better shadows and beams down on the structure a little bit differently and i don't know if that's got a a connection with the tides as well different stages of the tide and where they set up and where they sit um and then with that sun being higher and a different stage of the time. But I find that often the 10 a.m., 11 a.m. midday bite is often a lot better than that 7 a.m. bite, especially around pontoons and, and jetties. But the a lot of my principles are still the same. I'll still try and fish jetties first, but I'll try and find areas where there's good current flow. 
Yeah. Go for it, Pete. Unmute yourself and uh, ask away, mate. Uh, Lua Tala versus watercolour. Do, uh, do you like uh, more clear natural colours in clearer water and more solid dark colours for dirty water? Yeah, exactly right, Pete. Yeah, exactly that. So anywhere there's really clear watercolour, I'll stick to my naturals, my my clears and greens, um, my clears and browns as well. Sometimes the little browns like a cinnamon, uh, a translucent cinnamon can work really well. Um, and then as the water gets dirtier and dirtier, the the more outlandish and outrageous that I'll go, I'll, yeah. I'll start with a motor oil. Um, what I also do is... I bleed a lot of soft plastics. So there'll be colours that I like, but they don't have any UV in them. So I'll dump them. I'll dump a bag of motor oil Z-Mans in with them and bleed that soft plastic. You've got to be mindful of brands because they can react from a, uh, like a plastic perspective, but some brands yeah, start have issues. So you guys would have, a lot of you probably have seen some of the new colours that Z-Mans come out. So such as the Mud Blood which is the motor oil and bloodworm, where they, they blend those two colours together. Whereas we've been doing that for, for you know, five to eight years now. We've been bleeding those colours ourselves. Uh, we've been bleeding cinnamon or pumpkin and motor oil as well. So we've been making mumpkin seed, we've been making mud blood, etc. You You kind of name it, we've been doing it. So have a think about you know, some of those colours that you like in your tackle box that might not get a good run, but then that addition of that motor oil kind of factor can often turn those plastics into, into something really, really cool. I've got about six or eight packs behind me that are bleeding for our Malacuta, so I won't, won't yeah. say too much, but, um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of packs that I just started on uh, two days ago and had a bit of a look today with a UV torch, and, and they're starting to look really cool already too, so... Um, but as you said there, that that's for me a, a general go-to, clear water, nice natural colours. Um, the dirtier it is, the more I start with my motor oils. But then I, I really like a lot of um, like a UV orange, that yabby UV, that kind of stuff works really well in really dirty colours. And I also really paint my jig heads. Um, I don't run uh, an unpainted jig head anymore. So I just mix up my own yep. colours. Um, I make a blend of motor oil and UV, orange UV, and then I just have a play. And that tends to make like a brown colour, but it glows really well under a UV light. And it, it tends to work well as a, I guess, as a head for most plastic colours that I that I tend to use. But, you know, it's a really fun way of just having a play and making your own colours to, to suit different plastic styles and combinations. Yeah, so thanks. No Chris asks a question. He's under that one there. So, Chris, I'll just un unmute yourself, mate, and ask away if you can. Yep. There you go, Paul. Hey, Chris. Um, best way to work the musk vibe? Similar to a crab, Chris, I, I do tend to work it a little bit more like a traditional plastic or even like a solid yeah. plastic retrieve. So the first step is really trying to get that the most accurate cast you can, especially under structure. Let yeah. that sink down on a slack line. So I, I keep my bail arm open as it hits the water. And as it's probably about to hit the bottom, I'll close that bail arm open, opa, uh, over rather, um, to then get some tension to see if the fish has grabbed it on the way down. Yep. Um, once it hits the bottom, I just let it sit there. And really, it's probably just a single lift and drop and wind up that slack. 
and, and they'll take it off the bottom and they pick it up and peck it off the bottom just like they do with plastic yeah yeah okay yeah that works yeah every time i've tried a must wipe i just spook the broom off i just i spot cast them and i throw it there and it drops down and they just don't even want it where i've seen guys like on youtube and they they throw must wipes at brim and they just straight on it and they take it straight away depends on the system too yeah yeah where are you oh, talking, talking paddo talking yeah paddo. yeah yeah, I, I found that the paddo fish react better to a crab than they do a muss. Yeah, okay, yeah. That narrows it down, yeah. I think I think I'd probably I think a crab fishes outfishes a muss for me four to one. And a stick minnow can sometimes outfish a crab two to one in there as well. Yeah, I see I see Hawksy's fishing use stick minnows all the time and I was like, Yeah, next time I go there I might throw a stick minnow and see if that works. Yeah. Right. That's that's the killer. <laughs> yeah, okay. And is that the 38 mil or is that? Uh, it's just an Oz Tackle Shinku, but yeah, they're all like that 38 to 40 mil. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a, a whole bunch from Jiggle Fishing as well. and Yeah, that's a few that I picked up, so I'm keen to use them when I get yeah, a paddock. I'll, I'll yeah, use the Jiggle Fish ones. They work well, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... From what we found, the most most consistent has probably been a stick minnow in there, to be honest. For some reason they just they just don't there's times that I catch fish on a muss in there, but they're not the biggest fish. And yeah, they just like you said, oftentimes they they, they get really, really shy and, and spooky on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've caught a couple of good ones on some crabs, but every time I yeah. try the must fly, but it just doesn't go my way. Yeah, there's like a handful of spots and then it can be different. Sometimes you see them up high chewing and you throw a muss right at their heads and they eat. And yeah. then nine times out of ten, though, they absolutely shit themselves. So Yeah, yeah. It's just that right time. Exactly. Right exactly. Right date. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, and I think there's just some systems are just so much better for it for some reason. Like the Yarra for the muss is just amazing. The Yarra and the yeah. Nong and some of the man-made structure around there, it's just dynamite. But for whatever yeah. reason... Yeah. Those paddo fish are really spooky and weary, and and so a lot of the stick minnows and some of the stuff we used to throw a lot was um, the Smith Crystal Alive, which is like that prawn kind of sinking minnow. But the the real advantage of that Smith Crystal Alive is that it's weighted towards the the rear of the the hard body, so it's like a hard body prawn. But, but what you tend to, you try and do like an underhanded cast so that the rear of the hard body sinks or hits the water first. And what it does is it sinks backwards so you can get it under pontoons. Yeah, okay. Having it land kind of ass first, it just keeps going yeah. back under, not horizontally straight down. It keeps going back under in the shadows where those fish are. Yeah, that's a good tip. And because there's no rattle in it, it's really a really small profile. It's slender. Um and has some fan, a great color range. I think that's another really good one if you can get your hands on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then when the current's moving, which whichever way you would throw it with the current, so it can take the lure underneath the yeah, you, you try a bit of pressure, Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Especially in that first floodgate between the floodgate and the bridge, where you get some really yeah. strong current flow, and you've got those pontoons. Quite often, there's fifty to sixty fish stacked up under each one, and see the noses or see the tails. And it's about, yeah, just adjusting your cast length away from that pontoon to get the lure right in front of their faces as it comes yeah, to yeah. the current. Yeah. And then adjusting for the way, which which way the current's flowing and where that sun is as well. Yeah. Well, beautiful. That's pretty much it, man. Thank you. All right. Pleasure. Uh, Mr. Brendan, Brendan. Yeah.
Unmute yourself there, mate. Go for it. G'day, Paul. How you going, mate? Hey, Brendan. Well, and you? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Hey, uh, I suppose from your point of view, especially for the newer guys, even like myself, I've only been a few years into the brim fishing scene itself. Yeah. The overwhelming of different lures, different actions, different manufacturers, you know, I've got B2, which is the other Brendan, uh, always saying to me, yeah, I need to buy more and more lures all the time. And things like that. In a comp sense, you know, social fishing, all that sort of stuff, it's hard to not get overwhelmed on what to pick and what to throw. Um, you know, yeah. what you've touched on before is, you know, do you do your due diligence, your research, your practice, time on the water and everything else. Do you still find yourself getting overwhelmed with the array of different lures and manufacturers out there to this day? Oh, Brendan, I'm a, I'm a horrible example to talk to about this. <laughs> I am the biggest tackle slut ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I'm, I've got three 50-litre tubs of soft plastic sitting next to me. <laughs> Far too so many is this the pick me? <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but um look realistically i should just take my own advice and take and pack a handful of those favorites that i know will work your chub your chubbies your crabs you must but part of me and and that boating background where i was just able to carry everything that i wanted in the boat it's been really hard to break. That was probably my biggest hurdle. My transition from boating to kayaking was being able to cut down my the tackle that I take with me. And I'll still take 100 to 150 packets of plastics to a comp weekend. In the kayak, I'll probably have 40 to 60 packs of different profiles and different colors. And again, I'll, I'll make adjustments of what I think the water conditions will be and the clarity and the, the profiles that I need for a system. I still think that there are, what's the best way to describe it? There are certain days where only a certain lure will still work and you've got to have that lure, <laughs> otherwise you're behind the eight ball. So well, I thought exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's true. Like even at, you know, having done it for so long and, and being around successful teams and successful people and we'll, we'll be doing similar stuff and, one, you know, there was a perfect example last year where Declan and Dan Mackerel were 20 metres from us and in the space of 15 minutes, we caught 10 fish and we barely had a bite. And we just weren't, we are throwing something similar. Like we weren't far off the mark, but we just weren't throwing exactly what those fish wanted and it wasn't, we didn't have it and just a, a really small minor variation that just made all the difference. So... A lot of it is marketing, like what's new, what's old is new again. So, for example, Baby Vibes and their resurgence. I was throwing Baby Vibes in 2002 in the era. So they've been around for 20-odd years. And now they're the hottest thing since sliced bread, thanks to Adam, Deethy and, and Dale and everyone. I actually think they overtook the must now. Well, just about, yeah. Yeah, but for, for bigger fish, I think the must is still, still a killer bit. Again, you know, I, I filmed I filmed Painesville last year from Gippsland and, and unfortunately it's killed it for, for me and for us. Like we, we had it to ourselves essentially last year and it was probably eight to 10, 10 to 12 teams doing it this year and it will never be the same again.
it's likely. So now I've got to try and find that next sneaky spot or that technique that no one else is onto yet. Um, cause that was, that was a, a real, real benefit to us last year where we were using it before a lot of other teams had kind of cottoned onto it. Yep. And, um, so if you can, so one of the tips that I give a lot of anglers is also look back at what you used to throw and, and try and give that a run again. Like SX forties are always a fantastic lure. They've got a great action, great color range. They've always caught brim, but with marketing, with social media, people really go after that latest and greatest, but oftentimes fish get conditioned to the latest and greatest, but if you go back and pick up something that you threw five years ago, eight years ago, it's likely you're going to catch brim and they haven't seen it for a long time. So that's what I try and do. But with my, <laughs> with my tackle collection um, hobby, <laughs> I try and find that new thing out of Japan as well or yep. in Australia and try and get that and try and get variations of colors. And, and then I get colors to bleed. And so the, the whole thing just gets out of hand, <laughs> but um, yeah, look, unfortunately there are certain colors, certain profiles, certain sizes that will outfish others on day on different days. And you need to have a variety of things to, to answer that um, succinctly. And then second part of the question, if I may is, um, I'm going to tell you already put your hair out about it is how do you cope with obviously not being so subtle on the water anymore with the big Lorance stickers and everything else in the yak and that um, but you know especially come comp days I've had it happen a few times and um, and that is how do you deal with the uh, number of yaks or you know, boats or what you know whatever the case is warming you in your spot you know yeah um there's been a few times i want to whip some people with the rods and that but yeah obviously you're out there to fish and enjoy yourself um how, how do you keep your cool out there in that situation it's a tricky one mate um look everyone on the whole has been pretty good there's been a small handful of times where people have gotten too close and it's probably actually been in the boat more than the kayak for me personally i know it's definitely happened in the kayak events and i hate to use the example but some of them less experienced anglers, especially in the tournament side of things who are just starting out will often um, probably encroach more than, more than the experienced guys generally. Sometimes, you know, everyone can do the wrong thing, but again, I think just having fished for so many years and competitively, I, I just let it go now, mate. I, Nelson was a frustrating one for me. There was a couple of spots where I felt people were wasting time and, hogging a piece of structure and they were fishing it ineffectively <laughs> i was able to, to literally go past drift past and, and pull a fish when it was when it freed up and it's just the way it kind of goes you know I, I moved away from it so it was you can't kind of claim ownership on it anymore and yeah it's a little bit frustrating but you just got to try and adapt and find an alternative piece of structure and likewise i think on you know, on day one, there was probably only a small handful of people that were fishing shacks and, and structure there. And by Sunday afternoon, there's probably been 15 kayaks that rolled through every shack by that time and just, just destroyed the place. So it was about me trying to trying to find something different, find another way of catching them. And um, oftentimes that's when you learn the most. can be really frustrating though. There's, there's no denying it. And I think it just comes down to whether you've got an alternative to, to fall back on 
um, think outside the square at that point in time or just really try and just go, you know what, it's no, no big deal. I'll just move move across to the other side, give it a rest, um, especially in areas where there's some current flow. They don't seem to be as badly affected by that. So they'll often regenerate. So if you see someone who's, who's fished an area, a stretch of river or a structure, if there's good current flow, a lot of those fish will often move up and down um, up the up the incline, I suppose. So sometimes they'll just sit deep and then move up to feed on those shacks. And those fish that have been sitting on the shacks or or a pontoon or a jetty, if they've been hit, they might move off that pontoon and then a fresh batch of fish will move up and give them 10, 15, 20 minutes to regenerate, reset, resettle. And oftentimes you can still get a, a fish or a hit after people have gone through. And the other thing, often back yourself in and fish behind someone. A lot of people might not fish the space effectively, uh, might be using a different technique or a lure to you. And so while it might feel like, oh, someone's gone through there, there's been countless times where teams and individuals have gone and fished behind someone and caught fish as well. So I hope that, that's answered it for you. Yeah, no, it's too easy, mate. I'll just uh, back up to you every day. We go on in the water together. <laughs> hey, if you can give me a tow, I don't mind. Let's do it. <laughs> No, I was hoping your legs would give me the tow. We'll just get your old man in the boat to come pick us out. My kayak's too heavy, mate. I've got too much gear on it. Um, all right. I'll try and wind it up a little bit now, Paul, for you. So we're not going too long. All good. If we can wrap up by 8.30, I'll be absolutely yeah, fine. We're pretty close to that now. Um, so there's a question in the comments just around the mass that's sort of extending on it. Um, sure. Have you found any ways to make it more snag resistant around heavy timber structure? Not really. I've just been running um, size 12 owners. I, I actually get mine unrigged completely. Um, so what I found last year when we first got them in those early batches, I don't know if it was the particular split rings that, that were on them at the time. I know some of the very first ones came with like size 16 owners. Yeah, I've got a set of them. And... Um, yeah, those split rings just do not hold up to what we were doing. Like I was, I was opening them up on pre pre fish day, and so I stripped before that that Gippsland weekend that that memorable one last year. For those that that didn't catch it last year, we got caught five brim for seven point three four kilograms, yeah, and ten fish for thirteen point seven eight kilograms. And you just covered the other part of what someone else asked. <laughs> they wanted to talk about your gippy lakes, so yeah, yeah. And so, what I actually do is I ask, I get them directly from Callum, so I order them from him, and I order them unrigged, and so I'll get the heaviest, smallest split rings that I can. Uh, yeah, so like five or ten kilogram split rings, and generally run size twelve or size ten owner ST thirty sixes. I've started experimenting with W hooks. So I found some Innovator, I think they're Innovator Fly Ws and some other Ws, but you need a heavy wire W. You've got to try and find the right gauge and the right kind of size to fit the muss. Um, and so I've started playing around with that concept a little bit in really heavy timber, but not so much the man-made structure. And man-made, I still throw the full trebles, the double set. And the only place I found it was a little bit snaggy was actually around Williamstown. But a lot of the Gippsland stuff I found is actually pretty clean for, for what where we fished. Um, I feel like there's probably some 
man-made stuff and some trash around some of those Williamstown docks that that was a little bit snaggy that I did lose a few muscles to, but most other places have been pretty clean. Yeah. Okay. So easy. Well, if people have got any questions or want to buy any of your merch or anything like that, or do you want to just give yourself a bit of a plug and where they can find you, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Just um, over on Instagram, on Facebook at Paul Malov Fishing. My Paul Malov's just got the kind of personal Facebook account. Um, feel free to add me there as well if you want. And then on YouTube at Paul Malov Fishing as well. No worries. Thank you very much for doing this, Paul. I really do appreciate Pleasure. it. Um, and I hope all the guys that are watching and followed along have had a good night following in and got some information out of it. Appreciate it. Thanks, for, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, thanks to everyone that tuned in tonight. Too easy. Thanks, Paul. Very informative. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Take care. Have a lovely night.